We're doing all right. Okay. Hey, I just want to give you a reminder uh, that the adult Sunday school class at 8.30 is meeting all through the summer. You know, we had a, a little glitch with that, but we're meeting all through the summer, 8.30 Sunday morning. We had a great study this morning. So just a reminder, if that's uh, not been a part of your summer or you were a little confused on the time, we're meeting every Sunday, 8.30 on. So that's Sunday morning. Now, I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? No, that's something else. I know what you're thinking, though. If you've gotten a bullet and you look on the back and there's nine points, and you're thinking, Pastor Rick, nine points, we're going to be here till Tuesday. See, you were thinking that, weren't you? You were worried about that. Uh, actually, when Ryan asked me to uh, share this morning, as he's going to be away uh, for a bit on vacation, he said, would you take Cain and Abel? I said, do I get two messages? He said, just take Cain. I said, okay. So, so that's what I'm going to do this morning. And uh, I'm going to spend a little time with the first uh, three or four points. And then when we get to number five, it'll be boom, boom, boom. So don't worry about the, uh, the time on that. The, the, the first ones will be a little longer than the last ones. But we're in Genesis chapter four, and we're following this uh, uh, movement of God's purpose and God's mission throughout uh, mankind's recorded history. And we're in Genesis chapter 4. And uh, I have uh, attempted, I was really thankful to the Lord in the middle of the week because I said, Lord, this might be the most concise treatment of sin and the fall that I've ever done because we can get to the root. Listen, if I were to ask you to measure a piece of wood, and I say, uh, cut that piece of wood 6 and 179, 358ths of an inch, and you'd say, I don't, I don't even have, I want 179, 358ths of an inch. Or I could say, just cut it six and a half. Wouldn't six and a half, wouldn't a half be better, easier, more simple? That's what I love about this. There's only four people on the planet. It's easy. We can boil it all down. You can get rid of all. Listen, we have a, a lot of confusion because there are over six, and a, six billion people on our planet. But the principles in this uh, portion of Scripture apply to each soul that's ever lived. So we can just boil this down to the common least common denominator. We live in the midst, midst uh, uh, of, in a world that has myriads of nations, hundreds of nations, and languages, and peoples, and tribes, religions, 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 and belief systems. All it can get really confusing. But before all of that, this is the least common denominator. We don't have to deal with 179, 358s. We're just going to deal with 1 over 2. The story of Cain is the story of a reprobate, the story of an unrepentant man, the story of a doomed soul, the story of a man on the broad way, the story of a rejecter of God. He's the story of a man that wanted to change the road signs. And it's the story of each one of us. And perhaps it'll be easiest to see how this works without all the crud and all the isms and all the schisms and all the doctrinal infestations and all the cultural infestations and all the national diseases and all the perversions that we have to wade through in our day and age. 
And frankly, you get a little weary of hearing about all of this because, listen, if you just boil it down to the principles in this portion of Scripture, you cover it all. There's only four people on the planet. Not a lot of crud yet, so we get up close and personal, front row seat to see how it all works. To see how this thing of sin affects our hearts and lives and humankind. Even the New Testament comments about this. In the 11th verse of Jude it says, Woe to them, judgment, the nations, the people, all, each and every one of us have sinned and come short. Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain. They followed the path of Cain. We've been teaching the youth in our Sunday evening meetings that their direction determines their destination. The direction you choose to take determines where you're going to end up. Your intentions don't. You know, we, we might intend to end up in a good place, but the direction that we're taking determines our destination. And you know the old adage that hell is paved with what? Good intentions. <laughs> good intentions don't cut it. What I, what I hope to happen, what I want to happen, what I wish would happen isn't going to make it. And 1 John 3 says, do not be like Cain. I want to give you nine elements in this presentation. This presentation of Cain, the unregenerate, the lost soul. The first example of each one of us born of parents whose sin has infected their heart and life and now is deemed infective to the entire race. And the first thing I want to say is this. Unbelievers have hopeful beginnings. Unbelievers have hopeful beginnings. Genesis 4.1, Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord I have brought forth a man. Now the name Cain in the Hebrew is Cain, and it carries the idea of a craftsman or a smith. And the word's even used to refer to what is made by a craftsman. So Cain can mean a formed thing, or a thing formed by a craftsman like a spear or a sword, something like that. But literally it's a formed thing or a made thing. So Eve is saying, I've gotten a made thing, something made from the Lord, and I named him the made thing. How's that for a first name? The made thing that she had with the help of the Lord. So this is a wonderful beginning, isn't it? A gift from God, a life, precious, full of potential, and maybe, maybe, just maybe, this was the seed that God had promised us back in chapter 3 that will bruise the head of the serpent, that will undo the kingdom of Satan, that will restore everything that was lost. Maybe he's the one, this made thing I've received from God. It wouldn't have been a stretch for her to think that. But this is the promised one. So everything begins with such wonderful promise. And in the goodness of the Lord in verse 2, she gave birth to another, his brother, Abel, blessing upon blessing, such hopeful beginnings. Now Cain was that foreign thing that she and God had formed together, but Abel has a quite interesting name. The Hebrew is Hebel, 
and it means a mere breath. And it expresses the brevity of life. And Abel's life was brief, wasn't it? Now we don't know exactly how long he lived because there's no determined time before this incident, but measured along the long spans of life before the flood, Adam lived 930 years, Abel's life was brief. But it must have been a home like any other home, with the blessings of a newborn, the blessings of hope, the blessings of all of the potential, and yet not like any home. Because this was the fulfillment to Adam and Eve, that God be, is still going to bless them, even though they fell in the garden, even though they were disobedient, even though sin entered into their heart and life, God is going to cause Eve to be the mother of all living. God is not going to dispose of the original commandment to multiply and replenish the earth. God had given Eve to Adam that she might, they might reproduce and raise a generation to those who would know and love God and be blessed by Him. So this is a great advantage, isn't it? And I say at the beginning, life has so much hope. It all started out so hopeful. Two boys. One went into uh, one area of responsibility and necessary for life. He became a farmer. The other went into another responsible, uh, responsibility and necessary for life, a shepherd, a raiser of, of livestock. But that's where the positives end. And that's where they end for unbelievers. There was a best-selling book a few years ago called Your Best Life Now. That is only true of unbelievers. This is my best life now. Didn't take long for Cain's character to be revealed and for Abel's character to be revealed as well. And interestingly enough, the revelation of their character is manifest in an occasion of worship. They went to church one day. See, it's when you get into the environment of religion of belief systems, of faith, that the manifestation of real character emerges. And we find that Cain and Abel are in a place of worship, and we find Abel's worship was acceptable and Cain's was seriously flawed. And that brings us to the second point. Unbelievers offer unacceptable sacrifices. Now Abel kept flocks, Cain worked the soil, verse 3. In the course of time Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering of the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel in his offering, but on Cain in his offering he did not look with favor. This is the characteristic of the lost soul. This is the characteristic of the apostate. It's not that they're irreligious. It's that they offer unacceptable worship. Unbelievers, listen, unbelievers generally speaking throughout history have been religious. In fact, the whole human race is incurably, incurably religious. You can go to the darkest corner of the world throughout any point in human history and you're going to find people worshiping something. You can take the, the, the um, 
uh, B.C. era, you can take the early church era, you can take the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, you can find any, any time in history, you go to the darkest, which seems to be the most black, the, the most uh, uh, out, out there people, and they're going to be worshiping something. Might be the sun, it might be moon, the stars, reptiles, a mountain, a lake, a river, often an image of their own making. Oh, cultures have gods of their own making. The United States, you know, has this God, I think most of them have fashion that, you know, well, God is a little bit like this. We hear that from the, but I think God is like this. I think my God would do that. My God would never do that. My God would, and we have this Frankenstein God that we worship, but we worship. even to the point of worshiping ourselves. You see, because man is incurably religious, he has to attach his worship to something. We are born with this innate need to worship. We are born with this innate need to ascribe worth to something. That's what worship is, ascribing worth to something. And whether that's a sun, whether that's a moon, whether that's a reptile, whether that's a Frankenstein kind of God I've pieced together and this is what I think God is, whether it's myself, we have to ascribe worth to something. Might be a hobby, might be the family. But some ultimate attraction is valued in our life above all else. What is that thing for you? What is the one thing that you ascribe worth to? The one attraction of your soul that is valued more than everything else. And Cain was religious. He brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering. Now it doesn't tell us how old these boys were. Maybe they were 15, maybe they were 25, maybe they were 100, I don't know. But spiritual character tends to manifest by adulthood. So they probably reached the age of maturity where they could have decided for themselves how they were going to respond to the Word of God and the promises of God. And you say, well, did they know about it? Listen, I would guess the two most potent evangelists that have lived on the face of the earth for trusting God would be Adam and Eve. I mean, who better understands what it means to be lost? Who better understood what it meant to fall victim to Satan? How many times do you think Adam set those boys on his knees? How many times do you think Eve gathered them around the table and told them what Eden was like? What the garden was like? what they forfeited by their disobedience to God. How many times did they plead with them to believe God and not believe Satan? How many times did they plead with them to put their faith in the promises of God because the promises of God brought joy and blessing and the promises of Satan brought death and destruction? I can't imagine anybody better to get the message across to these two young men than those who were thrown out of the garden. See, we evangelize people and tell them what's going, what it's going to be like just from what the Bible says. They could tell them because they were there. 
They knew full well about the angel. They knew full well about the flaming sword flashing in every direction. And that God was going to send someone who would bruise the serpent's head and overthrow the usurper and bring back paradise. Now this word for offering is mina in the Hebrew. It's the word that's later used in Leviticus to refer to the offerings that the Lord instituted through Moses for His people. So they're out of Eden. They couldn't go back, but they can still worship. They're still in a position to ascribe worth to something. Now there's no reference to whether it was the first fruit, which later on the law of Moses, God demanded the first part of the crop, which is a real act of faith because it might be the only part of the crop. And you recognize God first. We do that every week with a paycheck. Or do we? What are we worshiping? What do we ascribe the greatest value to? If it's God, I take the first tenth, the tithe, and I set that aside, very first thing. That's what a God worshiper does, a Jehovah worshiper, a Yahweh worshiper. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and there's a lot of other things, but that's not my topic this morning. But if you give to God, you recognize Him first. And if you do what God says to do, God says, I'll make the rest good for you and uh, we'll fill your barn, not just the first fruits, but the best of what you have as well. That was kind of the way it started out. But more importantly, Cain didn't bring an animal sacrifice. Now, I'm convinced God had instructed them to bring an animal sacrifice because it had already been demonstrated that there was a need for a substitutionary death to cover the sinner back in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve experienced that. I believe they came to faith. That's not my topic this morning. And, and trust you've understood that as, we, as we've gone along in this study. Because the Lord had to slay an animal, an innocent, a substitute to make skins for Adam and Eve. So God had already instituted the substitutionary death principle. So here you have Cain giving no recognition he's a sinner. In fact, his offering is self-righteous. He's bringing what he has produced. And it appears to have been an offering of self-righteous achievement. Why did Cain come in the first place? Why do some people come to church when it's clear their lives are up a creek and they don't have really a relationship with God or even desire one? I don't know why that is. Maybe to gain points with God. I don't know. Whatever the reason Cain had, it didn't go well with God. See, we don't come with our own agenda. We don't come with our own works. We don't come with our own efforts, our own ways, our own ideas, our own thoughts. We don't come with our own religion and rituals. You have to come on His terms 
And you will never make it without the shedding of blood. Because without the shedding of blood, the Scripture tells us there is no what? Remission of sin. Your sin cannot be dealt with unless an innocent substitute has died in your place. You say, Pastor Rick, but later on weren't there like grain offerings, you know, of, of, of like the, the we, yes, yes. Those were thanks offerings. Those were simply acknowledging that God is the source of all their food. But the primary, and, and a lot of people, you don't want to have grace before they eat. That, and that's a good thing. Fine, acknowledge God. That's not redemptive faith. The primary and necessary offering was the animal sacrifice because it was that which spoke of a need for someone else or something else to die for your sin. And Abel brought animals. And not just animals, but his mina was the fattest of the firstlings, the best of the best. And the emphasis there is on quality and character. Cain brought what reflected his own achievement, his own accomplishment, what he was able to do. No particular regard for quality. And Abel brings the best of the best offering that was a symbol of his own need to have his sin covered by the death of an innocent substitute. And all those animal substitutes in the Old Testament, all those animal sacrifices were simply pictures of the one sacrifice that actually takes away sin, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the sacrifice that recognizes sin and death and the need for a substitute. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel. The Lord had regard for Abel because he saw his heart. And his offering reflected his heart. And it reflected what God required him to bring. 1 John 3 says that Abel's behavior was righteous. And that means he did what was right. Now, how do you know what is right? You do what God says to do, right? You do what God says to do, you're righteous. You're right. But Cain was walking in a way that Jude equates with the damned, the lost. Oh, they do something moral? Do, do something ceremonial? Achieve something and offer that to God. Aren't I here this morning, God? Haven't I done a good thing? I put a tie on even. Aren't you pleased with me? Just offering something we've done, something we've accomplished. And we bring that and offer God and think God's happy. He's not. That somehow this is my ticket to heaven. And it started out very hopeful. Yes, it did. But soon became a pattern of unacceptable worship. I was reading a fellow by a, 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 a Jewish man who had been converted to Christ. And recognized that Jesus Christ was the Savior that the Scripture had talked about. And he turned his life over. He, he confessed his sin and repented of his uh, uh, sin, the life that he'd led, and he became a Christian. But because of his Hebrew or, or Jewish uh, tradition, he began as he began to align with the people of God. He began to experience their experience on Sunday morning. And listen to what he said. 
if an ancient Hebrew rode the time machine to the front door of a church one Sunday morning and saw what we were doing, he wouldn't expect us to come out alive. And what he was referencing was the great care that the priests took in preparing themselves to enter the Holy of Holies or the presence of God. And as he began showing up in church and he began to see there is no preparation in this place to enter the presence of God. Some can't even get up in time. Some, some can get up in time, but they have to fall asleep. You know, sometimes I really want to put a sign out there that says adult nursery. <laughs> really. You know, the little ones, the little ones over there, the adults here. And, and, and we kind of, we kind of joke, uh, uh, laugh because we, we can relate to that. But it's a heinous thing. God is not doing worship in a mechanical way. You know, it used to be, I'm old enough to go back a few centuries, and it used to be that in this country, some of you might remember this, that next to Christmas and Easter, the Harvest Thanksgiving service was the largest attended Sunday in the church. And that was to thank God for the good harvest of the season, and, and that's no longer happening. And you know what somebody said back there when they used to have the, the Harvest Thanksgiving service? They were questioned, why do you have this Harvest Thanksgiving service? And you know what they responded? It's the assumed thing in decent communities. That's just the natural assumed thing you do when you have a harvest. You thank God for it who gave it. That's not happening in this world anymore, is it? Abel worshiped by faith and worshiped in a way that God pleased him. Number three, unbelievers resent true believers. Unbelievers resent true believers. That's pretty typical. The world hates genuine Christians. They hate us because of our narrowness. They resent the fact that this is true, this Word of God, this Bible, this Holy Scripture is true, and nothing else is true. I'm here to, I'm here to tell you that. Some of you won't like it. There's got to be enough uh, uh, worldly folks in a congregation this size to, to, to not agree with this. But this book is true and nothing else is. And you'll resent the righteousness this book calls for. You'll resent the goodness, the virtue, and the blessing that God puts on people that follow Him. That's why, that's why the world wants us to keep us out of the public life, right? They want the Bible out of schools, out of politics, out of social life, out of the culture, out of everything. Some of you will know the name Charles Darwin, the evolutionist. Early in his life his father sent him to school to be a pastor. Listen to what he said, I don't reject the idea of God. I just reject the God of the Bible. I don't want anybody telling me this is the truth and nothing else. I don't want anybody telling me I'm a sinner or this is sin or that is sin and I'm on my way to hell and I need to recognize that God provided a substitute to die in my place, Jesus Christ. That's what they hate. 
And that was Cain. Verse 5, Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Listen, unbelievers get angry at believers. And Cain is just mad. Actually, the Hebrew implies the idea of heat rising up in his face. He was furious. And they get furious about the fact when we say this is the truth and nothing else is, but I'm here to tell you this is the only thing that will save and nothing else will. The society of Cain still exists. Have you heard about Andrew Lampert just this last week or two? Andrew was an 18-year-old senior at Nanawag High School in Woodbury, Connecticut. Andrew is on his high school's debate team. And one of the things a good debater knows is you get all of the facts that you can get. You get as many facts on your opponent and his position as he has so that you can uh, refute, you know, his points and prove your own case. And Andrew was assigned to prepare a debate on gun control. And so he went online on his school's uh, internet service and because he had to prepare a debate on gun control and he tried to log into the National Rifle Association website. But he realized there's a big problem. It's blocked. <laughs> he tried the Second Amendment Foundation website. That was blocked. He tried several other pro-gun websites and found they're all blocked. He set that assignment aside because he began to get a little concerned and he had this nagging suspicion. So he tried other conservative websites and found they're all blocked. Although he had unhindered access to liberal websites. For instance, Connecticut Family is a pro-tradition, pro-marriage group that was blocked. But the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transsexual website, not blocked. The Vatican website was blocked. Islamic websites were not blocked. The National Rifle Association, the National Right to Life, Second Amendment Foundation, Paul Ryan for Congress, Jesus, blocked. The TeaParty.org, ProtectMarriage.com, Christianity, all blocked. So he requested a meeting with his school principal, who referred him to the school superintendent. The superintendent said he would fix it, but he didn't. So Andrew went to the school board with his mountain of evidence, and they said they'd look into it, but nothing happened. Then he got a hold of Todd Starnes of Fox News. <laughs> Smart boy, this Andrew. He found out there were inconsistencies along conservative and liberal lines. A school is supposed to be fair and balanced toward all ways of thinking to encourage students to form their own opinion. The school board began blaming their filtering service, Dell Sonicwall, who wouldn't return anybody's calls. And Todd Starnes concluded, public education is supposed to be neutral, not left-wing indoctrination centers. Folks, we need, parents especially, you need to know what's going on. 
And I'm not, ta I'm not talking about stepping away from public education, because 90% of the Christian kids in this country are there, so who are, we giving our, who are we giving up on? I'm just saying we better get involved, we better get plugged in and understand what's happening. Number four, unbelievers reject the Word of God. Look at verse 6, then the Lord said to Cain, stop right there. Then the Lord said to Cain, okay, now this is direct from God. There's no written scripture at the time, so the Lord speaks directly. There's no getting around that this is God. There's nothing to indicate that Cain suspected maybe it's not God. There's only four people on the planet. He knew it was God. He knew who was speaking to him. He knew who was talking to him. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? See, now God's not looking for in information. He, he's just trying to initiate a conversation. He, he's trying to get Cain to look at his own heart, to look at what's motivating him, to get him to take a, a look at this sinful heart and his brooding rage toward his brother. And then God says these very gracious words, Cain, this doesn't have to be the end of the story. This doesn't have to be the way it is. Look at verse 7. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Boy, this tells you if nothing else does it, God by nature is a Savior, isn't He? He's a Savior. He's a Redeemer. He says, Cain, you can repent. You can repent of this sin, and you can ask forgiveness, and you can bring a right sacrifice from a right heart. You don't have to be motivated by anger. Just do what's right. He's offering him the joy of forgiveness that Abel knew, that Adam and Eve had come to know. And if you do, your face will be lifted up, which is the opposite of being slumped down in the, in the dumps. You'll find that in, in churches across our country. People come in, booms, like they've been sucking on lemons all morning. You know, just, yeah, just down in it. I'm just down, or angry or upset about just out, all kinds of out of sorts. And God said, listen, it doesn't have to be that way. Do the right thing. Verse 8, uh, verse 7, but if you do not do what is right... Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you have to rule over it. He said, listen, if you don't do what's right, and you can say that to each one of us this morning, only two people we're dealing with here, you can multiply it six billion times or more. It has to do with each one of us. If you don't do what's right, you haven't seen anything yet. Or you can do what's right. Acknowledge that you're a sinner. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge your self-righteousness. I've just been trying to come and offer up God, you know, what I think I can spare and what he ought to be happy with. That you haven't been willing to see yourself as a sinner. And then obey by bringing a proper sacrifice. And if you don't, sin's crouching at your door and it's going to rip you to shreds. And your home and on it, on it goes. So we only have four to deal with here. We've got six, over six billion to deal with now. But it's not really confusing because it boils down this way to each and every one of those six billion people. And yet he rejected the Word of God. I don't care what the Bible says. I've had people, honestly, I've had people tell me that. I'd rather say, okay, I believe that's what God says. I believe that's the right thing. I'm just not going to do it. And he rejected the Word of God. And you know why? 
He loved his sin. That's why people reject God. They love their sin. They're not desperate. They don't want to be saved. They don't want to be delivered. They don't want to live a different kind of life. They love their sin. Cain's getting this direct evangelistic message from God himself. He knew who was talking to him. He knew what God could do in his life because surely his parents had told him what he did in their life. He saw what he did in his brother's life. And that's why Romans 3 says in describing a sinner, and listen, sometimes we think sinners are just pretty nice people, they just don't have enough information, right? You know what the Bible says? There is none. There is no one that's righteous. Not even one. There's no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. That's why it's all grace when God the Holy Spirit it condescends to, to come to us and speak into our life and touch our heart. It's solely His grace. Unbelievers don't fear God. They don't care about God. They love their sin. And if need be, they'll kill. They'll let you have it. They'll take your head off. They will. And because Cain only had one person to hang around with, his righteous brother, who he hated, that's what happens. Number five, unbelievers try to hide their sin. Oh, yes. <laughs> try to hide their sin. Verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? Now, Cain is no longer near the body, right? Which means he had run. That's what sinners do. Flees the evidence that his sin has left. Flee the debacle. Carry on the appearance of being upstanding and, and a noble person. Hey, get off the church. He's not going to acknowledge his sin. He's not going to say, well, he's over there right where I left him when I killed him. He's not going to say that. You know what he's saying to God? Listen. He's saying, God, your questions aren't even appropriate. God, why should I know where he is? Am I supposed to take care of God, your questions are irrelevant. He denies killing. He denies the responsibility. That's what sinners do. They deny their sins. They will even reclassify them. And you know sin is being reclassified for us in our culture? It's not sin anymore. You know what it is? It's personal expressions of individual freedom. Isn't that lovely? Deadly, but lovely. It's the new morality. Sin is the new righteousness. They try to hide from their sin. Pornography on Wednesday... Upright citizen on Sunday, and everyone thinks I'm wonderful. That's what sinners do. Number six, unbelievers are eventually indicted by God. See, we finally end up at the judgment seat of God. The doomed are eventually indicted by God, verses 10 and 11. And there are no more questions, right? You are cursed from the ground. The very ground which you brought your self-congratulatory offerings 
the very ground that yielded a crop which was delightful to you, the ground that gave you your crops opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood, and God says, Cain, you did it, you did it, you're guilty, you're guilty. Verse 12, when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. You can try, my friend, keep trying. You're going to get nothing out of life. At that point of your pride, you will not succeed. You will never find forgiveness. You will never find reconciliation. You will never find peace. You will never find gladness. You will never find the acceptance you crave. You, my friend, are guilty. Unrepentant, lost before God. And I'm thinking at this point, listen, why didn't God just kill him? Just kill him. I can think of three reasons. One, grace. Grace. Now listen, if you can believe it, God's going to give him another chance. <laughs> what an awesome God we serve. <laughs> Have you ever had a second chance from God? Third, fourth, we'd run out of fingers and toes, wouldn't we? That's the kind of God, because of his grace, he's not willing that any should what? Perish, but that they would all come to repentance. And secondly, I, I think of the government. The, the right to capital punishment belongs to a duly constituted government. God's word tells us it's never to be an act of personal vengeance. There is no blood vengeance. And there is no court yet in any government, so he's not able to just kill in keeping with his... But I think thirdly, he's given us a living example of an unbelieving life, of a lost life. Four people, here's Adam and Eve, and they've come to repentance, and they're in newness of life. Abel, who lived a righteous life, and here is one, and he's going to be an example of those that come after. The pattern for the unbeliever, then, is meandering purposely through this world, meaninglessly through this world, under divine judgment, and nothing they ever touch will have any eternal value. Number seven, unbelievers protest their judgment. Look at this one. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. My punishment's more than I can bear. I can't take this anymore. Listen, that is not repentance, folks. That's not repentance. This is an assault on God's fairness, on his kindness, on his justice. It's saying, God, you've got to be kidding me. You can't be this hard on me. Why are you doing this? Have you ever heard people holler that at God? I can't take anymore. What have I done? And all of this, and it's an affront to God's justice. Did you know, listen, did you know that the city administration here in Fort Wayne is proposing a plan to help traffic in downtown Fort Wayne? And what they're, what they're talking about is Ewing Street, which is one way north, right? Like three or four lanes north, Ewing Street. And Fairfield, which is one way south, three or four lanes south, and they're talking about making them two-way streets. And the reason is because decades ago, they were assigned one-way status because there were hundreds or thousands of people working at General Electric. 
and you had to get a lot of people in there and you had to get a lot of people out without gumming up everything else. But since General Electric's not there anymore, we don't need it. So they're probably going to end up changing the signs one of these days and everybody's going to be happy. But I want you to know God does not change his signs to accommodate our current trends and feelings. The Broadway, I'm telling you, the Broadway still accommodates every conceivable passion that man comes up with. And if something new comes up that hasn't come up yet or we haven't thought about but it comes up, we can accommodate it. And the narrow way is exceedingly narrow. And I think one of the major problems we have in this country today is that a lot of what we call church is traveling in the broad way. A lot. With every conceivable persuasion and passion and lust and desire and emotion and taste and feeling being accommodated. And I will be a relentless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Number eight, unbelievers fail to appreciate common grace. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. See, God's the avenger throughout the Bible that tells us that. Deuteronomy 3, Psalm 94, Romans 12. Hebrews 10, God is the avenger. He places in the hands of duly constituted government, but no personal vengeance, no blood vengeance. And in fact, he becomes the protector, doesn't he? God becomes Cain's protector, which is common grace. He didn't have to do that. He could have killed him. And he not only protects him, he lets him live. And he marks him with a sign, puts some visible mark on his forehead so that everybody would know the mark. And if you kill him, you're going to deal with the vengeance of God. He's protected him again. And he's already pled with him to make the right choice, given him a curse, but protected him from death, which would give him another opportunity to repent. And he has absolutely no appreciation for that. None. And so number nine, unbelievers settle defiantly outside the presence of God. Unbelievers settle defiantly outside the presence of God. Verse 16, so Cain went out from the Lord's presence. No comment. No comment on God's invitation to do the right thing. No comment on God sparing his life. No comment on God giving him time to repent. For on God being his protector, he just went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. You say, where is Nod? I don't know. Doesn't matter. It only matters he was outside the presence of God. Let me just share one more thought and I'm, I'm done. And let me show you how easily this works. There's a song that's been around for a while. It's somewhat popular in Christian circles on Christian radio. It's called Healer. Maybe you've heard the song Healer. Some of the words say, I believe you're my healer. 
I believe you're all I need. I believe you're my portion. I believe you're more than enough for me. Jesus, you're all I need. Thousands of churches have been singing that popular worship song since Australian youth pastor Michael Gugliamucci wrote it in 2007. The Aussie worship band Hillsong United has made it a global anthem. So Christians around the world were shocked and betrayed when the 29-year-old youth minister that wrote that song had faked cancer for two years in a strange ploy to hide his secret pornography addiction. The fiasco has become one of the biggest scandals to rock Australians' Christian community in years. In a tearful apology aired on Australian television, Gugliamucci said he faked symptoms and wrote bogus emails from doctors. He sat in waiting rooms alone while his family assumed he was getting treatment. He appeared in church concerts with an oxygen tube in his nose, deceiving thousands of mostly teenage fans believing he needed a physical healing. The talented but tormented young man eventually trapped himself in his own deceptive web. Church leaders asked him to confess his lies to the police since he used the story to raise funds. He was stripped of his ministerial credentials and is now receiving psychiatric help. This man's pretend sickness was caused by a disease of the soul that plagues millions of people today, including many Christian men who wear masks to church to hide their shame. They haven't stuck tubes in their nose or broadcast their lies to teenage audiences, but they're lying just the same to cover up their own lust. They too need to come clean. And my friend, we are not to walk the way of Cain. You go down through the list. Hopeful beginnings. Unacceptable worship. Resent the truth. Resent true believers. Reject the word. Hide our sin. Indicted by God, oh yes. Failing to appreciate his grace and settling outside the presence of the Lord. Father, thank you for these minutes this morning in your word. And Father, perhaps we have a great picture before us of your purpose and plan for mankind. Thank you that we can boil it down to just two examples, a positive and a negative, though it pertains to each and every one of the inhabitants of our globe and the inhabitants of human history. Father, I pray this morning if there is one here that has been in the way of Cain, been living a lie, been putting on a sham. One thing on Tuesday or Thursday or Friday and something else here. Father, you have given us all one more chance because of your grace to come clean. Help us take off the masks. Help us to experience your grace new and fresh. For your glory and for your honor, we pray. 
This old world's in a bad shape. It's not going to get better. We believe your word. It is true. Your will be done. Amen.